Oh my goodness, we have got a lot to talk about today with the Powerhouse Roundtable. Some events that happened this week and then some of the major events over the past year. So let's get right to the introductions. Dan Sweeney covers politics and a lot of other things for the Sun Sentinel. We're glad to welcome him back. And it is always great to have Nancy Encrum on the Roundtable. She is the editorial page editor of the Miami Herald and also Welcome back to one of our favorites, Mark Caputo of Politico. He writes the daily Politico Florida Playbook, which has been on hiatus for the past week, and we've missed it. Good to have you back. Well, I can't say I've really missed working. <laughs> <laughs> well, Happy New Year to you all. Thank uh, you. Nancy, if we can, let's begin with sort of the, the story du jour of the moment, which is we are on, what, day 10 of this government shutdown. And frankly, I think that the people on both sides, the White House and the congressional Democrats have been pretty darn cavalier with the 800,000 people who depend on, who are government workers, who are either furloughed or are working without pay, and then American people who depend on their services. They have not done themselves e any favors, and cavalier uh, is, is a kind word. It's almost as if they have given these Americans the backs of their hands, especially during this time of year. Uh, they need to sit down and talk. They need to explain this, both sides, to the American people. Right. The Democrats really need to uh, be clear that, to, to their base, this is really not about keeping us safe. This is about right. uh, a president who is uh, really keeping his promises to his base. Mm -hmm. um, we saw earlier, uh, I think uh, uh, Senator Rubio said that uh, the, the bill also includes so much more in terms right. of monitoring this wall. Right. And, and the president needs to make that clear. Right. Too. And, and you know something, uh, Mark, the National Politico Daily Playbook uh, and your obviously the Florida correspondent, they made a really good point the other day, which is for the last eight or so days, President Trump, who stayed in Washington, should have stayed in Washington, has been AWOL. He could have come out every day and simply said, I'm here, I'm ready to hear their figures, let's see a proposal, come on, let's get this settled. Well, that's because very few people trust him. So what would he have really been served by doing that? Well, symbolically, it would have said, I'm ready to strike a deal sure. with the but Democrats. But if, if he was ready to really move forward on the wall, he would have done it in previous years. He's basically only doing this now that the new House Speaker, a Democrat, is coming in. Right. Let's face it. The Republicans also possibly could save this through a process called, or advance the wall through a process called budget reconciliation. Right. Mm -hmm. They're not doing that. So the injection of the wall issue into the debate is just throwing an apple of discord that he knows the Democrats would reject. I'm surprised the Democrats haven't come back and said, hey, you want your wall? Great, let's talk about comprehensive immigration reform yeah. and support a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented. Yeah. That yeah. didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, why didn't they do that either? Dan, weigh in on this. How do you see it? Well, especially what you said earlier about you know the, the 800,000 federal workers being treated so cavalierly. I mean, the... the the suggestions uh, from, the, from the government as these people were going on furlough through the holidays included uh, try bartering with your landlords, uh, try, <laughs> try offering to do chores around, around the apartment complex in lieu of rent, uh, which, you know... Boy, these are great ideas. <laughs> but that doesn't actually usually work in the real world, you know? So uh, yeah. but that, that is where we've gotten to with the federal government, that they're telling their employees to you know, trade with their with their landlords. And yeah. let's be honest, the majority of people, or I think you said uh, earlier, plurality of the people who are illegal flew in and overstayed their visas. Right. And we are seeing 
uh, reverse migration. There are fewer people coming, more people leaving. Right. I think I saw the figure the in, in today's Miami Herald, 700,000 people they know of around the country who got legally got visas to come as visitors and have simply overstayed and they are working and maybe they've got American children. Right. One of the things that I got to say, Senator Rubio said at FIU that I, I, I thought was interesting. He said, all the people who have gotten TPS, Temporary Protected Status, Haitians, Salvadorans, Nicaraguans, whoever who are here should be allowed to stay legally. I think that's kind of a progressive position. Well, it's consistent with this past support of immigration reform, which holds that these longtime members of the community should be kind of fully invested into the American community and citizenship. Yeah. yeah, well, they already, I mean, they, they work, they pay taxes, uh, and they don't always realize all the benefits. I mean, they pay into Social Security, right. but they, you know, if you're here illegally, you're not going to ever get the benefit. And it's forcing these families to make just an awful decision about separating themselves from their American-born children. Right. You know, finally, the sort of to wrap up this part of this discussion, uh, Dan, December 11th it was, was the famous, now kind of infamous meeting in the White House where Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer met with the president. They went there not knowing all the cameras were going to be there. Sure. And they were there. And the president really kind of tried to make his point, but got the short end of the stick. But in the end said, I'll own a shutdown. Yep. I'll take the medal. Uh, now he is saying, of course, he won't. Well, uh, you know, the president saying one thing at this point and then saying a different thing at this point is is not uh, not unusual in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the Trump administration, uh, you know. But but it does make it really difficult to make the point that you know he's just been tweeting the last couple of days about how this is all the on the Democrats to to do something and come back and right. fund fund his border wall. And he said yeah. beforehand that this was all on him. Well, and, and he also said before that the wall was being built at his campaign rally. Yes. Right. 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 And then it's just like, well, hold on, which is it? So the wall was being built or it's not being built now and now it's the Democrats' fault. It right. just gets it gets a little complicated this time. And it, I think it gives us a good window into how chaotic and how much discord there's going to be between this White House and Nancy Pelosi's house. And, and to that point, uh, Nancy Ancrum, on Thursday, the Democrats, and ostensibly, I'm pretty sure, aren't you? Pelosi's going to be voted the House Speaker again. Right. And they, she, even more than Schumer, is going to be driving this discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. She is going to be driving just about everything that the Democrats do yeah. over the next but two years. But she can't overplay her hand. Then she will really anger. Most Americans are going to say, man, we've got worse gridlock now than we had before. I think she's smart enough not to over, overplay her hand. I'm not sure about her colleagues and the ones that she will be leaving. Right. We need to get the measure of the uh, the newbies who are coming in through the House, right. and they are clearly much more progressive. Especially the left-leaning, yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, absolutely. So she's going to be uh, probably herding some cats. <laughs> well, that is sort Our of job. how you lead Congress. All right, everybody hold your places, keep your thoughts, because we're going to go now to the big story of the year in South Florida. In Florida was the terrible shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. We'll come back and talk about that in just a minute. Welcome back to the roundtable here on this Sunday. We are with Mark Caputo of Politico, Nancy Ancrum from the Miami Herald, Dan Sweeney from the Sun Sentinel. Dan, let me just say, I think that the reporting that the Sun Sentinel, you and a lot of other people, your editors, 
have done on the Stoneman Douglas shootings is just first rate, excellent. And this past, uh, yesterday's paper, even though it couldn't get printed, had a timeline. And it wasn't your fault, it's a virus within the mm -hmm. system. But the, the timeline of the hour from the moment that uh, Nicholas Cruz walked into that school and fired, and then subsequently his capture, you know, an hour and a half or so later, uh, is chilling, along with the video of him in the stairwell of the school yeah. pulling that AR-15 out of that black bag. Uh, I mean, you look at this and you say to yourself, why didn't somebody along the spectrum of many people, why didn't somebody intervene, really get this kid help, get him separated from society? Sure, I mean, like, there are, going back years, there are all of these moments where somebody should have seen something coming. Right. Uh, and, then, and then the day of, there's so many missed opportunities to right. at least to, to stop cold or at least mitigate what, uh, right. what happened. School security guard, not a police officer, but Andrew Medina saw him walking in with a black bag and he said, oh, there goes crazy boy. With a, bag, he, with a bag that was a rifle bag. Yeah, he uh, didn't know there was a rifle in the bag, but he knew this kid shouldn't have been at school. He knew he was a bad kid, he, you know, violent tendencies. Sure, uh, and then, you know, you go from there to even the, the most heroic employees at Stoneman Douglas that day, you know, the, the, that Guardian program that's in the new law now that allows right. people to be armed on campus is named after Aaron Feist, who went into that building right. and died trying to save people. Right. Uh, when he went in, he already knew there was a shooter in there. Uh, one of the kids from the building had run out and told him uh, that he had seen Nicholas Cruz with, uh, with this gun. And he ran in there. He had a radio, and he didn't call a code red. He just right. ran right into the building. Right. Um, now, what you do in those circumstances, do you have the presence of mind to do all of this? But, but there were so many opportunities along the way to, to do something, to get things on lockdown, to make sure that the students in that third floor didn't come out when they heard the fire alarm, right. which is why people on the third floor died. They were all out in the hallway. They were in the hallway. You know, and the they couldn't get back into their classrooms right. and they couldn't get into the bathrooms. In the second the floor, were nobody died. He walked through the second floor, there was nobody in the hallways, yeah. and he went up to the third floor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Nancy, your uh, colleague and friend at the Sun Sentinel, Rosemary O'Hara, the editor of the editorial page, and her staff have editorialized that Scott uh, Israel, the Broward County Sheriff, bears full responsibility or a lot of responsibility for what happened. He was not at the scene, but his deputies were, and what, eight did not go into that building. And that is on him. As far as law enforcement's and BSO's uh, uh, response or, or, or egregious lack of response, that indeed is on him. And he needs to be held accountable, he needs to be held by, uh, accountable by, by the voters, and asked why this happened, and probably removed. Yeah. Well, he sh let me just say that uh, Sheriff Israel is going to be a guest on this program mm -hmm. next Sunday. So we will hear him present his defense. He's told me, you know, what he said to me, Mark, was I'm like a general on a battlefield and yes, I'm responsible, but I can't be responsible for what every individual soldier does. <clears throat> well, that's very true, but the buck stops with him. And <clears throat> A few days after the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, I remember I asked the Broward Sheriff's Office for its active shooter protocol manual. Right. And that manual says that uh, a deputy on scene may engage. Right. It doesn't say shall. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, you play like you practice and you fight like you train. 
And it looks like it wasn't just Scott Peterson, the deputy who was on scene at the time, the school resource officer. It was a number of other officers, as many as what, eight? Yeah, eight total. Eight personnel. Right. Eight personnel heard gunfire, and their first reaction was not right. to go and engage the shooter. Right. It was to do something else. And that and stands in contrast to the Coral Springs police that showed up who, who immediately ran into the building. They right. immediately right. ran yes. in. Mm -hmm. In fact, there, I thought there was a very moving anecdote in all these hundreds of pages of the investigation that have been released and were in the preliminary report of the safety commission where one officer, I believe, from Coral Springs arrived and he was told by BSO deputy, don't go in there, there's an active shooter. And he said, expletive you, my kid's in there, my son's in there, and he ran into the school. Incidentally, I think it bears mentioning that when these reports first surfaced, almost immediately after the massacre, it was denied by the sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, there, you know, it's basically, oh, it's just this one guy. And then slowly the information comes out. It turns out the original reporting is true and that there were a number of officers who didn't, it sounds like, do their and, job. And, and a right. couple things about Sheriff Israel. First off, if he compares himself to a general, okay, but generals are removed because things go badly on the battlefield all the time. Absolutely. You know, that happens constantly. Right. Uh, and second off, that, that, that the, uh, the changing it from shall engage to may engage an active shooter, that was done by Sheriff Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, that's his, by his own admission. That was, that was a change that was put in by him. So, you know, the, the, these, these sheriff's deputies out there that are not engaging and he's going to say, I'm a general, that, you know, this was, this was right. soldiers on the field. It was yeah, his decision to allow it's your to battle that. plans that they're following, yeah, it, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, Nancy, it seems to me something else that has not yet happened, and maybe with the release of this report, it will begin. But other than Scott Peterson forced to resign and maybe one other BSO deputy, right. who has been held accountable for these errors? Has anybody at the FBI lost a job? Has anybody at the no. Broward County Public Schools? No. I mean, people have not been transferred or maybe gotten a promotion, but who's been held accountable? Absolutely no one. And in fact, um, again, you mentioned Rosemary O'Hara, uh, yeah. my, my colleague at the Sun Sentinel. And often They're, a member of our round table, absolutely. and a great one. Uh, they wrote a very strong editorial targeting um, Superintendent Robert Runcie. Right. How has he also been able to to escape the full wrath mm -hmm. of, of of parents and students and and what happened right and Dan today in your newspaper in the Sun Sentinel editorially it calls for Runcy to be removed right. and and they just called for the sheriff to be removed as well over on the the right. side of the paper right. so right. yeah they're, they're they're saying this should happen it, it very well could you know the um, Incoming Governor DeSantis has said that, you yeah. know, he said during the campaign that he would remove the sheriff had he been governor at the time. Right. Uh, and he came up with a public safety advisory committee for his transition team that was just chock-a-block full of, uh, of the, sh the sheriff's fiercest critics. Right. So, right. you know, that kind of sends a message That's as well. By the way, what the hell is wrong with Broward County? Supervisors of election, the superintendent of schools, and the sheriff. I mean... It's an interesting case study in government yeah, that doesn't function. And well. a couple of judges who have been chastised, disciplined by the Florida Bar right. for their activities, mm -hmm. you know, while on the bench. Well, all right, everybody hold your thoughts. Let's get to election Florida politics 2018. <laughs> we'll do that with the roundtable after the break. Welcome back on the roundtable today, talking about lots of things that happened in 2018. Let's talk about the election of November. Uh, and, uh, Mark, I've got to say, I guess it was only a few months ago, maybe last summer, maybe you were here, but uh, in any event, 
the conventional wisdom around this table and in most uh, political circles was Gwen Graham was going to be the Democratic nominee for government uh, governor, and Adam Putnam was going to be the Republican. Boy, yeah, we I were... never, I never bought the Putnam. Thing. Oh, did you? No, Graham thing I bought into uh, a little more because you know, not only the polling show, but. Adam Putnam was just out of step with his party. The Republican Party of Florida is the Republican Party of Trump. Ron DeSantis was Trump's guy. End of story in a Republican primary. All right, so he won by, <clears throat> what, 33,000 votes. Right. I mean, less than 1%. We're, historically, we've got all these less than 1% elections. And, uh, you know, he won even though, you know, he's moderated his views, Nancy, right. in the last several weeks he's you know reached out to democrats but this was the guy who called andrew gillum a socialist right who wanted to turn florida into venezuela right i mean it sounds mm -hmm. kind of absurd now it sounded absurd then in fact it did but you know you say what you say during a campaign you know all bets are off during a campaign when you want to win um, both sides can play dirty and and that's just what you know that's just what happened despite the fact that you know i think gillum uh, ran a pretty positive outwardly yes. positive upbeat campaign for which you know for, I, I, for which I think the state he got should people be excited he did he did across a spectrum it's very interesting I also think it's interesting that this is the third Democratic candidate for governor to win by to lose by one percent or less right. and uh, the Democrats need to uh, figure out what's going on why their people aren't coming out and uh, what their message is. Right. Uh, Dan, in Broward County, the most Democrats registered of any county in sure. the state, uh, Gillum did well, but the fact of the matter is he didn't do well enough. No, as usual, a lot of people didn't, didn't show up. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, and that's, that's typical in Broward County, particularly in midterm years, but also, uh, relatively speaking, uh, in, in presidential years as well, a lot of voters don't vote in Broward County. Uh, now, what the Democrats need to do to turn out their voters and, you know, get much higher turnout in places like Broward and Palm Beach, you know, uh, yeah. the, their smarter minds in the Democratic Party will have to figure that out, right? But, but yeah, it's, it's a constant, constant problem for them in Broward. And obviously, you know, this election came with its own <laughs> set of issues. Well, uh, and, and <laughs> one of the issues which Mark <laughs> talked about was Brenda Snipes, the yeah. Broward County Election Supervisor, uh, running, uh, I think, I could say as a reporter, objectively, I'm not a partisan, but she really was not competent to run this election. Oh, she Brenda, Brenda Snipes' elections office, it was, a, it was a miracle when there was an election without a controversy at her office. It was, right. it was a terrible place, and I think Governor Scott's biggest mistake is he didn't remove Brenda Snipes from Earlier. office. Earlier. Years ago. And exactly. presumably Pete Antonacci, right. who Pete Antonacci has been appointed as a replacement is presumably going to clean out a little more in that office because it's it's not just the we were talking earlier about uh, sheriff israel and he's saying i'm the battlefield general or whatever yeah. well it's not just the general in her case it's also no, no. some of the right. troops all the staff i mean the people and they were running the office i'm told you know in the last year or so i'm told she didn't really show up all that often anyway oh it showed hey i do want to get back to one thing that's interesting yeah. about 2018 and something we're going to have to talk about uh, whether we want to or not, which is the issue of race. Yes, I'm glad and, you And, you know, for the first time we had an African-American at the top of the ticket. Uh, he lost, and he was far more of a dynamic candidate, Andrew Gillum was, against yeah. Ron DeSantis than Senator Bill Nelson was against Governor Rick Scott. Nelson came closer to Scott than Gillum came to DeSantis. And I'm wondering, and I don't know, to what degree did race play a role yeah. in Gillum's slightly diminished 
margin relative yeah. to Bill Nelson's against Scott. And, and this is a topic I have thought a lot about. Nancy, right. I'm sure mm -hmm. you've talked about it too. And I just want to say on the record, I think that Florida is not full of racist voters. I think that most people, if you ask them whether you're in Monticello or Sumter County, wherever you are, they're going to say, well, sure, I know he's a black guy, but that really had no influence on my vote. But for some of those voters, after Trump endorsed DeSantis, I think race did play a factor. Oh, right. I mean, I don't think that we are able to quantify it. I don't think we are able to satisfactorily quantify it because people lie. Yeah. People lie. Yeah. However, he did come close enough that I think it might have been more of a matter, and he had just enough demerits, that FBI investigation. That hung over his that, head. That hung over his head until the, that it's very possible that if more African Americans, more Democrats had actually come out to vote, that could have put him over. That's not to dismiss uh, uh, right. a, um, the possibility of racism. I think that, you know, I think race plays a role in just about everything in this country and probably no less here. Yeah. Well, before we run out of time, I do want to acknowledge two bright, shining moments of journalism in 2018. And one, as I said much earlier, Dan, was the outstanding job the Sun Sentinel has done, continues to do on the Stoneman Douglas massacre. So props to the Sun Sentinel and Nancy, props mm -hmm. to the Miami Herald and to Julie Brown, outstanding reporter, Casey mm -hmm. Franker, editor for the perversion of justice series about this pedophile. despicable, despicable pedophile Absolutely. named Jeffrey Epstein. Right. And how he seduced and, and abused dozens yes. of teenage girls and somehow has thus far escaped. He has so far escaped. Uh, it is, a, it really is just a magnificent uh, display of investigative investigative journalism on Julie's part yeah. and on the part of her editor. All right. Well, that's going to be the final word, but I want to thank you all for coming yeah. in. Mark, I'm glad you're back at work. I'll look for the Politico Daily Playbook uh, tomorrow.